one thing that I always say is that investing is just pattern recognition, being able to see the trends in a financial statement and then seeing how the stock price reacts or kind of seeing things before they happen. If, you know, gross margin erodes and so maybe pricing power is decreasing or actually they're just investing in a new cost center. Like there's there's different things that are just pattern recognition over time. Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering business, ideas, entrepreneurship, investing, and life. We take an unconventional approach that leans into thoughts and ideas that aren't often publicly discussed. We'd love to hear from you at thefortpodcast at gmail.com. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Ford Capital. All opinions expressed by Chris and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Ford Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. All right. Well, I'm excited to have Ryan Reeves, founder of investingcity.org on the show with me today. I found Ryan on Twitter after following his content for the last year, which I've really enjoyed his way of thinking about public companies and their meaning in this world has been inspirational. And so thank you for joining me on the show today, Ryan. Yeah, it's my pleasure. To just kind of jump right into it, I was on your website and it said that you started investing at the age of 12. If you wouldn't mind giving a little kind of background of you know, your story and how you got to investingcity.org, it'd be a great way to start. Yeah, for sure. So I was a bit of a nerd as a kid. I just found stocks interesting for some reason. But I actually, in the fifth grade, I had a class where my teacher brought in her husband, who was very interested in the stock market. And he would kind of talk to us about the stock market. And there was this virtual simulation of where you pick stocks and kind of competed against your classmates. And even then, I remember not being very good at it, actually. I remember this girl that was sitting next to me, she picked Apple and I picked something like McDonald's and she <laughs> absolutely kicked my butt. And from then on, it was almost like, huh, I'm, I think it's kind of cool that you can make money doing this way. Like make money actually just kind of picking things through the internet. And it just felt kind of futuristic. And I just really wanted to get better at it. So I asked my parents for a little bit of money to invest at a young age. And for some reason, they agreed to it. Um, Knowing nothing, I basically just started googling best stocks to buy. And I found everything from you need to buy stocks with low PE ratios, and started using a stock screener. Basically, just didn't really know anything and stumbled my way through. But that's kind of the origin of it. And for some reason, I was really just fascinated with it at an early age. Was that who got you introduced to stocks and interested in them? Or were you interested in it even before that fifth grade class? Yeah, that was the first time I had ever even heard of what a stock was. So you you start finding interest in, in stocks, were you kind of a self-learner from there on or did you kind of bring on a mentor or kind of seek people out who could help you start to think through, you know, how to get better at this? 
Yeah, so it's actually been mostly self-guided. And the crazy thing about the internet is that there's so much information out there that I actually think one of the most underrated skills is being a good Googler. Like, it sounds really kind of silly, but yeah. just going to the internet, being able to be resourceful, tear through information, kind of synthesize that information and then make it useful and apply it to your life is this meta skill because we have almost limitless information at our fingertips. So yeah, just honestly finding random blogs through the internet, just reading every post on there, finding Warren Buffett's letters, reading through all those, then finding The Motley Fool and finding just different ways to think about investing. I think that's one thing that's really interesting is taking one extreme view, like a deep value investing strategy where you're paying super low PEs, looking for huge margin of safety, and then taking like the extreme opposite view of really growth-oriented companies that are changing the world, very high PE sort of thing, and then figuring out what and testing what are the pluses and the negatives of each side. And I think I was just doing that and finding different things through the internet and um, just kind of formulating my strategy and my investment philosophy. Would you say that you're lean more towards being a growth investor or a value investor? Yeah, so I think about this a lot because I feel like a lot of people, and I think the way that mutual funds or different investment strategies are marketed, it forces people to either choose one or the other. Like nobody really comes out and says, well, I buy expensive stocks and then hope they go up because the Buffettites or people who are value investors, they would kind of just view that person as like a complete speculator. So I I definitely fall more in the growth camp, but I, I really try to think of it as because, you know, Warren Buffett says that growth and value are tied at the hip. Basically, growth is just a component of value. And the thing is, I think the real difference between a growth and a value investor is the margin of safety. So a value investor really kind of looks to the past and sees how much margin of safety is priced into a company versus a growth investor might be more of like a venture capitalist looking at what the upside could be. So there's definitely both sides, but I definitely um, fall more into the growth camp. You mentioned being a good Googler is a really huge critical skill. Is there anything that comes to like top of mind of for somebody that might be listening of like some easy things that people can do to get better at Googling besides just being kind of a, you know, nerding out on Google and just spending a relentless amount of time just continuing to search? Is there things that they can do to make their time as productive as possible so they get to the best stuff quicker? Yeah, that's a super interesting question because I think a lot of information filtering is the sources that you have initially. So a lot of my jumping off points I've just found over time. So for instance, I'm signed up for a few newsletters and people will aggregate information and then I'll click over to those links and then be reading through something. And let's say it's an idea I maybe don't understand. Then just start 
like for instance, I just wrote a blog post on medical devices. Didn't really know anything about medical devices or the structure of the industry. And so I just started Googling medical device primer because Google is obviously an algorithm that tries to figure out it basically just surfaces the best content that it can. And they have whole teams of people trying to figure out where can I push up the best content. So if you're like (laughs) going through page two or three, then that's that's probably digging really in the weeds. So I'd say that a lot of it is just like short keywords because some people Google like, what is a good stock? How do I (laughs) figure that out? Like, it's just a lot of different words, but you can just do quick words, good stock metrics. And then it's all about the keywords and then just filtering through information as fast as possible. Does using the word primer help? I've never actually typed in primer when searching for something that I'm trying to get educated on. It seemed to help. I found this really good medical device. I guess it was a primer on line that was actually made by Congress. It was just like this 40-page pamphlet that was a primer on all medical devices. It was super helpful. So what does like a typical day in your world look like? I you know, the, the more I talk to folks that are in, that work in the stock market um, as investors, they spend a lot of their time reading. Um, like, what would a typical day or week look like for you? Yeah, that's a great question because most of it really is reading and thinking. So I'm not trading every day. I maybe trade once a month, and that's probably a lot. Um, Recently, I've been trying on a few different positions. And so I've been trading a little bit more. But yeah, most of the time, it's really just reading and thinking. So I try to read through at least one annual report a day. Because what's interesting about investing is that just like money compounds, so does knowledge. Mm -hmm. So if you're reading through these different annual reports, and you're figuring out okay, this software company has a go-to-market strategy like this, and you read another one over here, you can kind of triangulate all of these different data points. And so I just spent a lot of time reading through different annual reports and then also quarterly earnings calls. So I try to read one quarterly earnings call transcript a day. Um, That's I just kind of have a running list of companies that I'm really interested in researching about or a current portfolio position that I'm trying to learn more about. So if I get through an annual report and a quarterly earnings call, which shouldn't take more than two, two and a half hours, then I feel really solid about the foundation of the day. Then I might spend it writing a blog post, digging deeper. And that's where I think a lot of investors maybe stop. Like It's a lot of reading, but then the thinking aspect of it, I think is really underrated because sometimes I'll just pull up a Word doc and go through an industry. And for instance, like the medical device, just start writing and then filling in the gaps of my knowledge by Googling and figuring out where I'm not really solid. Because once you start writing, then it becomes really clear what you know and what you don't know. If you can explain something, then you really have a deep understanding of it. But if it's in your head, it's 
sort of kind of flimsy. So I think that I write more than the average investor on a daily basis, also because I'm just trying to get um, a nice backlog of content, seeing as this is only my second year um, running the business. And so I'm just trying to make as much content as possible. But yeah, it's just on a daily basis. Most of it is just reading and trying to understand different businesses. Does does writing help you? And so basically what you're saying is writing helps you understand more about what you're trying to learn, just writing it out. Yeah, exactly. Um, So what I find is that I think I understand something. And then when I go to explain it or just dig a little deeper, I really don't understand it as well as I thought I did. And so, yeah, it just helps me. There's that Feynman technique. So Richard Feynman was a physicist and he had a technique where he basically said, if you are trying to learn a topic, explain it to a third grader. Basically, you can't use this jargon and just high level language because then the third grader won't understand it. And if you find yourself stumbling through the definition, go back to the source material, figure out where the gaps in your logic are, and then try to explain it to that third grader. If they understand it, then great. You too, you understand it as well. Yeah, that's fascinating. I would listen to the Naval Ravikant and Joe Rogan podcast last week, and Naval said something along the lines of, if you find yourself trying to memorize something, it's an indicator that you don't know it yet. Um, Yeah, I like that a lot. And being able to say something to a third grader is making it really simple, and simple is often you know, the hardest thing to do. So uh, that's super interesting. When you're reading like an S2 or a quarterly earnings report, is there like a a method to the madness that you're kind of, is each one you kind of look at differently or are there certain things that you're trying to hit on or or find out each time you read one? Yeah. So one thing that I think is underrated is that there's an opportunity cost to time as well. So if you're just reading through an annual report and you're reading absolutely every risk section and you're reading through every little thing that maybe doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things, then you can spend less time learning a new business. And so I think that's something that's maybe underrated is being able to tear through things and then figuring out where should I dig deeper. So I first try to figure out how the company makes money. So if you can't articulate how the company makes money, then you should probably pass on the company because then you won't understand the growth drivers. You won't understand when something changes in that story. Will you change your mind? So really, that's the first section, just figuring out what the business does. And then From there, I usually jump straight to the management's discussion of the results because then you get kind of a snapshot of what's been the latest things that are happening. Usually they'll mention, okay, revenue decreased and here's why. We'll give you a little bit of commentary on that. And then I try just glancing at the financials real quick and seeing, is this a company that kind of fits my niche, what I'm interested in? And then from there, if things start checking the boxes, then I'll go back and read the risks section. A lot of the risks are more boilerplate language. So I suggest reading like the first three to four. And if it's all boilerplate, all 
boilerplate than kind of just skipping down um, and reading the rest of the management discussion. But I think kind of that jumping around helps you to really focus in on what's important. And I think the one other thing that's underrated is having context for something. So if you don't know what type of investor are you are or what's in your circle of competence, then you don't really have any context to relate these things back to. And then you'll just be reading through something because I said you should read through an annual report on this podcast. So it's like you really need to understand what your advantage is as an investor so that you can have that context to then be able to breeze through these annual reports because context is basically just like this shield or something outside that you can stick data points to. Yeah. Wow. That's fascinating. You take a company like Uber, that's, you know, a sexy stock that's just come out. It's a product that everybody uses, but they're currently hemorrhaging cash. Do you look at that differently than you would say a company that is truly profitable today or on something like that? Are you looking at more like how could they make money in the future rather than how they're making money today or how they're losing it? Yeah. So I think a huge part of this equation is competition. And I think not enough people talk about competition as an element of investment returns because let's say Uber had a virtual monopoly on this market and they came in, undercut taxi drivers, and they enabled users to get rides all over the country for half the price. Pretend taxi cab to the airport was $40, Uber is $20, and they have no other competition. So the thing about that is they're going to be able to raise prices. Obviously, they're not going to get to the $40 because then taxis will just come in and it's all about the consumer. If they have no pricing power, then it's kind of tricky. And that's kind of how I view the Lyft and Uber dilemma right now, because both companies are trying to steal market share. And both companies, if you've noticed, like I when I check... Um, Uber or Lyft, I'm trying to get a ride. I'll check both of them just to see which one's cheaper. In LA specifically, Lyft was always about 3 to $4 cheaper. Now it's about even because Lyft has raised their take rate. They take more from drivers. And so now it's kind of like, why would I choose Lyft versus Uber? And the big thing is kind of this pricing power, especially since both of them are trying to compete with each other. And so that's the thing I really look for. If, on the other hand, it's a software company who looks like it's losing money because of accounting principles, however, you see the trend in the earnings and it's actually getting better over time, but you just see that it's looking like it's negative because the company actually puts out money in sales and marketing and then they gain it back through subscription revenue and they have no competition and they're able to raise prices, then that's a completely different thing in my mind. Right. Wow. Do you have a, um, like a time horizon for how you look at things or is it every situation's different? Yeah. So I've been thinking a lot about this because I think there's this one camp of investors that says you should buy a stock and absolutely never sell it. 
And I think that it's a really interesting idea because a lot of times you might sell a stock and something happens and it all of a sudden rises. But I think if you're actually picking stocks, that implicitly or even directly means that you believe your judgment is better than either just going for an index fund or you believe that your judgment is better than somebody else. And so if you buy that stock and it all of a sudden starts performing terribly and the business starts faltering, then there's an opportunity cost for that money. Why don't you just put it in something that you believe will do better in the future? And I think that's one thing that a lot of people get stuck into is this idea of the endowment effect. And that basically says, we put a higher value on something that we ourselves own. So somebody did a study years ago where they gave out free mugs to, I believe it was middle schoolers or something. And then they had this game where they would try to barter and trade their mugs. And the people who own the mugs obviously put a way higher value on it, even though they didn't want to buy it for as much. And it's basically the same thing with the stock market. Once we buy a stock, we put a way higher value on it than it deserves. I think that if we just viewed stocks unemotionally, just a vehicle in order to gain wealth, um, then we wouldn't get as tied into a stock. And so I think that's, that's one aspect of that. And in terms of going back to the actual question of the time horizon, if we say that we want to buy stocks and hold them forever, there's this opportunity cost that we have to think of. And so my current view is that I'll buy a stock with the intention of holding it forever. But when the story changes and the business performance falters, or I find a stock that has a better future then I'll just shift money out of that. So it's kind of this intention of forever, but when the story changes, I really try to change my mind. If the story um, in your initial thesis on like stock one that you buy hasn't necessarily changed, but stock two comes along and just has a much brighter future, would that elicit you to move money from stock one to stock two also? Yeah, so I say to a lesser degree than if this company one was faltering and the business wasn't really doing that well. Um, I'd say to a lesser degree because I feel to a certain extent, we always think the grass is greener as well. And if I've done all this research on stock A and I really know the business well, then transitioning money out of the company into one that I know a little bit less about and I really haven't understood the competitive dynamics or something like that, I wouldn't be as sure about it. So I'd say to a lesser degree, but I definitely have done that and am open to it. So on the endowment effect, you know, you're mentioning how we we put more value on things that we own. How much time do you spend kind of like stress testing your ideas? Like once you've bought something as opposed to looking for new ideas or new opportunities, how much time do you just spend focusing on what you already have? Yeah. So I'd say that I don't actually do a good enough job at just focusing on what I do have. And I think that maybe trying to get through different annual reports goes against that because 
I am trying to constantly turn over ideas and figure out new things versus just focusing on that core group that I really know well and going really deep on them. I'd say um, that it's probably about 40% on current ideas and 60% on new. And maybe that's even too low on the current ideas. But one thing that one little tip that I do is go to Google alerts and put in all my stocks and get just a daily update on any news or if they were at a conference or if obviously know when their earnings came out. Um, So I just try to get daily information um, and it's filtered rather than just perusing through random stock news. So I try to get that and I'll spend a little bit of time per day just going through that. Right. You said something earlier about growth versus uh, value and 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 that value investors are looking for more of a a margin of safety and something that's probably a little bit more predictable. Um, I have to ask a a Berkshire question. It it wouldn't be a a podcast without a Berkshire question, but do you think they are set up going forward to invest in the companies that are being built in the modern era versus their roots? Or will there always be a place for the value investor in the the business ecosystem? Yeah, it's a tough question. Um, In the most recent 13F filing, Berkshire actually just started a small position in Amazon. And that was kind of... uh, I know it wasn't Warren Buffett, actually. I think it was one of his portfolio managers. But it was just this kind of idea that maybe the future looks a little bit different. And I've I've definitely been struggling with the idea because in the future, it just seems that technological advancement is increasing at like an exponential rate. And so these companies that are maybe boring and there's not a lot of change... I think a lot of those will get disrupted through different innovation. And we've seen that in insurance. We've seen that in so many different um, areas that once we thought they there actually really wasn't much change, but we're, we're really seeing that. And I, so I wonder about moats and competitive advantages. What will the moat of the modern company look like? We see different things like network effects, and that seems to be one that people are really starting to understand now. But it'll be interesting to see if technology actually brings about different ideas of moats and different forms of pricing power. So I I think for a while there will be a there will be opportunity for value investors that they're just focusing on industries that currently aren't changing. But I think eventually we'll get to a point where technology changes so fast that mm-hmm. it'll be really hard to find an industry that just stays the same. Yeah. No, it, it's... It, I went to a, a, uh, a school in December called Singularity University up in Silicon Valley where they're teaching just kind of about the exponential world. And it was just a, interesting. They said everything in the world is on an exponential curve. You just kind of don't know where it is yet. So things that seem sleepy and, you know, aren't being currently advanced at the rate of other industries are still somewhere along that curve. And you just don't know. It's hard. We think as humans, we think linearly rather than exponentially. So 
everything kind of seems like it could be slow until it's passed you by. Um, so I, I just always think of Berkshire's model and think about where the world's moving. And there just seems, in my own opinion, just seems to be conflict in, in how you, you know, are able to value companies and look at, you know, projected growth going forward when things are moving so quickly. Yeah. And it's, it's super interesting because, you know, Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger have been in the markets for like 70 plus years and there is a huge wealth of knowledge in there. And I'm, I don't want to be that guy that says, you know, Berkshire is dead. These principles of value are over because once I feel like you start getting super euphoric and thinking that you know better than everyone else, then you just have to be careful because, um, So that's one thing that I really try to do is take the other side. So I really try to read deep value investing and just try to open my mind to things because I feel that if you fall in the growth camp and you only validate those opinions and you're kind of seeking out this confirmation bias, then it gets really dangerous because then it's kind of like an echo chamber. So I think if people can do one thing, it's read and focus or not really focus but just read a lot of differing opinions and things that make you kind of cringe because you know it's not something that you currently believe but really just try to open your mind a little bit yep brag on you just a little bit your your website you're very transparent about your results um six of the last 10 months you have had returns of anywhere between 42 percent in a given month and 102% in a given month. And I'll follow that by saying that one of what, what you, uh, the product that you're offering, um, which you are the only one doing it, is RAS or Research as a Service. I guess, can you talk a little bit about what that means to you and then maybe what, why that's translating into numbers that are not just beating the market by a little, but absolutely destroying the market? Yeah, so one thing that's been pretty helpful in terms of the results is I think for a while people didn't quite understand software. And what we're seeing now with the most recent IPOs like Zoom or even CrowdStrike this week is that a lot of people are starting to understand software more. And so I just sent out a note to subscribers this morning talking about kind of the last four or so years and how a lot of people have started jumping on the software train. And I'm getting not nervous, but I'm just perking up my ears because once you start uh, seeing a trend before other people, you can capitalize on that for a while. But then eventually, um, once it becomes figured out, all the alpha is gone. And so I was just looking back at some stats last night. And in February of 2016, Shopify, which was a recent IPO, is actually its third quarter ever, was growing sales at 100%. And guess what its valuation was? On a trailing basis, its price to sales ratio was about eight. What is Zoom's price to sales ratio today? 77. It is such a difference in the valuations that it is kind of crazy. And the thing is, a lot of investors can see Zoom growing for a long time. And if it does grow for a long time, then it actually is possible 
not probable, but it's possible that it could put up some serious numbers and actually some great results. I mean, Shopify has grown sales for the last three years at a compounded annual growth rate of about 75%. And in that time period, returns on its stock have annualized about 90%, which is absolutely crazy. That's almost a eight bagger in three years, just kind of doubling every year. And so we're obviously not going to see that magnitude of results since the starting valuations are so much higher. And so that's just one thing I've been thinking about lately. I think we got, I'm not going to say lucky because did a lot of research, kind of understanding software, looking at customer acquisition costs and the lifetime values, um, you know, three or four years ago. But the one thing is that just the returns um, from the multiple expansion and the growth of the last couple of years have definitely contributed to those results. And I'm not going to say that software is, you know, in an extreme bubble there, I think there are companies that are doing very well that are not getting hyped up by this IPO euphoria, but I'm just starting to get a little more uneasy. It's not that it's like uh, all or nothing, but um, that has definitely been a big contributor to the results. Wow. And the second question of what is research as a service and what, how did you kind of, I don't know if the words invented this, but how did it become clear to you that this was the business model that you wanted to take on? Yeah, so when I was looking at the market, there are a lot of companies who do straight stock picking. You'll get a monthly stock and that's offered on our website. That's kind of the lowest tier. And I think that that's great, just getting ideas in front of people. But there's there's a lot of people that are doing that, that there's Seeking Alpha, which you can get free content. I know they put it recently behind a paywall, but there there's just a lot of ideas circulating. But then I think kind of the differentiation is the pure transparency and what I like to call the community documents. So there's two things that I think are really interesting. And we have a financial database of over 100 companies now, and people can add to that financial database. So if you were looking at a company and you're looking through a financial database, turns out that you know Netflix isn't covered. You could actually pull it up, look at the filings, and just start inputting the data. And a lot of people have... Um, can do the same. And so we've just kind of built up this database and it's kind of like this collective knowledge that I think is really interesting. And then layered on top of that is just a transparent portfolio of real-time trades, which isn't necessarily unique, but um, I think it's like the collection of all of these things that can update in real time and that can be um, just allow people to save time on investment research. I think that that is um, a little bit of the unique value proposition. And so if you're a, um, a user of your business, then depending on what your sub- what subscription model you're to or that you sign up for, one of those allows you to basically go through this open source set of, of notes on all of the different companies that you're looking at. Are, the, are all those companies ones that you're invested in or at least or just companies that you're at least spending time on? 
Yeah, so not all of them were invested in. In the actual portfolio, I like to keep a fairly concentrated portfolio. And I think that is another reason why the performance has been really good is because, you know, a mutual fund or an ETF, they have legal requirements on the number of stocks or the amount of a position that they can put in immediately. And so we're not really constrained by any of those things. And so we can actually focus on our very best ideas and not need arbitrary diversification just for the sake of it. Um, And so that's to say that the financial database includes a lot more companies than the ones that are in the main portfolio. But I think each one can add to the collective knowledge because one thing that I always say is that investing is just pattern recognition, being able to see the trends in a financial statement and then seeing how the stock price reacts or kind of seeing things before they happen. If you know gross margin erodes and so maybe pricing power is decreasing or actually they're just investing in a new cost center. Like there's, there's different things that are just pattern recognition over time. So I think each company that we profile can help us actually pick a better set of companies that we hold in the core portfolio as well. Is your core portfolio limited to a certain number or is it just the ones that you like? you're open to how many stocks you own or do you limit it to some type of rule? Yeah, you know, I don't have a strict rule. I try to keep, you know, rules are a really interesting thing. I think there's a lot of value in rules because it kind of sets these parameters in which you can operate and then you don't have to really think about things every time. You know, if I had limited to like eight stocks, no more, no less, it might be a good thing net net because then you're really focused on picking those very best ideas. Um, but I also try not to limit myself as much as possible. I had um, like a stock picking mentor. I worked briefly at the Motley Fool, and he I thought he was just a great stock picker. And he would always say, "The one rule that I have for myself is that I have no rules." And I always thought it's like, "Wow, that's so much." that's so different than anything I hear. You mean, you should always have like a checklist. You should always figure out exactly who you are. Um, But I think one thing that is also interesting is just that I think one of the ultimate meta skills is holding two opinions that seem like they're differing in your mind at the same time and being able to function. There's that F. Scott Fitzgerald quote that says something similar to that. And it's just this idea of, okay, rules are really good things, but this guy over here says rules aren't good things. How do I function and where do I fall along that spectrum? And just wrestling with those questions, I think is super helpful, but that's a really long way of saying, no, I don't have a strict limit. (laughs) I made a note and I'm jumping back to something we talked about earlier. And this might be a relative question to the individual, but when you were doing your medical device research, so something that you didn't know anything about, but you went on a uh, an excursion to learn everything you could about medical devices. How do you know you actually know something now? Like, how do you know that, okay, I have a, an understanding of something um, that I didn't before? And that might be a loaded question that each individual has their own kind of point at which they feel like they've learned something. But do you kind of have these 
if I can know X, Y, and Z about something, I know enough to start forming opinions about it. So the first thing that kind of comes to mind is this idea that I was talking about earlier of context. So now that I've kind of done a small deep dive on medical devices, can I go read an annual report of a company and understand a company in this new context that I've created? For instance, there's something called LCD and NCD, local coverage determination and national coverage determination. And that's basically how medical devices get on Medicare's radar. And so if you get an NCD and it's approved by Medicare, then you can basically be covered for your medical device all over the country. And so I was just reading about a new company called Garden Health, which does liquid biopsies. So instead of taking a chunk of tissue out, you can draw some blood and then hopefully the results will be faster and more accurate in terms of figuring out when um, you have cancer or not. And so it's like a really valuable technology. And so I was just reading about this company and then I see these terms, NCD, LCD, and it's like, oh yeah, it's this and this about Medicare, if they can actually get these coverages, then Medicare will cover these devices and then revenue will skyrocket. So that's just kind of like a small example of being able to apply the current situation to this context. And so if I found myself being really confused about what is this and in the new situation, then maybe I don't actually understand it as well as I thought I did. Yeah, like I know even relating back to Berkshire he, and and they spend a lot of energy just really understanding who the founder of the company is and what type of person they are and that they're dealing with exceptional people. And I think and maybe this is just my opinion, but when you're that big it's it's easier to get to know the management cuz you could probably just go meet them one-on-one and 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 learn those things. Um, how do you get to understand who the people are running the companies that you're buying into um, besides just reading like reports? Is there other other ways that you kind of figure out their EQ and, and who they are as people? Yeah, there's actually a few things. So one thing that I try to do is just go quickly to Glassdoor, figure out how do people recommend the CEO? What do they think of the business? Maybe read through some reviews. Sometimes you can find some good things. So I remember reading um, the Glassdoor reviews of a company called Smartsheet. And it was a recent IPO. And I saw that the CEO replied personally to every single like medium or negative comment about the business. Mm-hmm. And then I actually just reached out to him on Twitter and he like DM me back and he said, yeah, I really believe in um, like relating to every employee that feels like they've been burned by us um, and all these things. I thought like, wow, that's a really interesting perspective into this guy's personality and what he really cares about. And I thought it was like a really good sign. So that's one thing that I sometimes do. Another thing is I'll just um, watch interviews with them. You know, Jim Cramer, for all his craziness sometimes, he does pretty solid interviews with some CEOs. Maybe it's not necessarily about the material that they're saying, but how they carry themselves, how they talk, how deeply they understand their own business. Kind of even, I mean, the one bad thing about really getting a lot of personal interaction with people is that CEOs are by nature usually very charismatic. Like they they can win people over. They got to that 
point for a reason. They're usually very successful. And so sometimes they can talk you into an investment. Um, and so that's one thing that I also try to keep in the back of my mind. If a CEO is too promotional and they're not focusing on any downsides, if they're just kind of glossing over any negatives, then I think that's something to be wary of. Um, but I think the real thing is all about how much skin in the game the CEO or upper management has. So I remember um, there was a company that I was looking at. I won't say the name, but it, the CEO was very promotional and it's, a, you know, it's like a decent sized company. I think it was about 10 to $15 billion market cap when I was looking at it. Very promotional CEO. But then I looked at how much stock he actually owned and it was like $10 million. And okay, that to like me or to most people, $10 million is an incredible amount of money. But for this guy, it was less than 1% of the business. And so how incentivized is he to make sure that that 10 million grows? Because in his salary, he's going to get paid like 5 million, right? So it's the level of incentive people have in order to do like go above and beyond. Um, So that's, that's the one thing that I think can't be faked. And one thing that I really focus on. I have to ask, are you a believer in, in the Bitcoin revolution? (laughs) <laughs> oh um it's that's definitely a loaded question um i will say that i've done a lot of research on it um i've you know read the white papers i'm just naturally curious in that sort of stuff where money and technology meets um i had dinner the other night with my grandfather <laughs> and he was grilling me on bitcoin he's like bitcoin is useless why should I uh, like be interested in this? And I was trying to explain it to him. And everything I said, he wasn't really, I don't know, he just wasn't taking it well. And so maybe I thought to myself, maybe I don't really understand it as well as I thought I did. Um, but the way I see it is that the upside is ultimately really interesting. Um, so I remember... I was listening to a podcast with Naval Ravikant and he was talking about the implications of this because you can basically digitize trust. That's the thing I'm personally most interested in about um, cryptocurrencies because if you can digitize trust, then there's a lot of different applications. I think Naval's use case was that you have two cars coming to a red light and basically this one car they value their time more. And so they're going to pay this super small transaction fee in order to turn their light green. And the other person, they don't want to pay as much. And so they'll just wait a little bit at the red light. And you can do this because you can digitize trust between two unknown parties. And just when I heard that use case, I was like, okay, maybe there is a really big future here that we can't really wrap our minds around. And it's kind of this idea of decentralization that's getting better over time because, you know, early days of the internet, I'm sh- there was a ton of people that didn't understand the implications of it. And so that's what I've really been trying to do, understanding what it could be. Right now, it's obviously, you know, there's not a lot of use cases. And just looking at the reality of it, there, you know, it's, it's more hubris and it's more uh like a vision of the future than the reality but that's always how technologies start 
Um, there is a great blog post by Chris Dixon that says the technology of the future always looks like a toy. Like it, it doesn't, it's not taken seriously. And obviously we need to ferret out which one of those toys isn't really lasting and which one will. But, you know, that's why returns uh, were so good for the early days because it looked so, you know, it looks so much like a toy and people couldn't really see that vision of the future. So I try to keep an open mind on this stuff, but, you know, I'm not like hardcore Bitcoin fan. Yeah. Are you the, like, you would be satisfied with staying on the sidelines even though if it does happen, the return profile could be enormous and getting in at a later date when you can more understand where that where your money's going. Like that doesn't give you heartburn that you could you don't get FOMO, I guess is my question. <laughs> um so my solution for FOMO is putting in a third of what you really want to put in. <laughs> and yeah. so you put in a little bit even before you've got it all figured out, even before you really understand everything. And what that does is it gives you a little bit of incentive to actually research it because you got some real skin in the game. Um, but then if the price keeps going up, you're like, hey, I've got a little bit of upside. If it goes down, you're like, okay, maybe I'll do some more research. Maybe I can average down or it's really not that much money for me to worry about. So I think um, sometimes you can view it as like, if I'm really going to do some damage to myself because I have this FOMO and I really need to get in, then just like slow down, put in maybe a third of what you're going to do. And then from then on, you can kind of become more natural with it. And so that's what I did like early in bitcoin and saw it right all the way up and i was maybe not smart enough to sell and so you know i'm just i'm just kind of holding because that's what i view like the asymmetric risk okay maybe i lose a little bit of money but if it can really blast off then you know it it could be like material to um like on a performance basis so that's kind of how I view it. I would not put like more than 5% of, you know, assets or even portfolio. Like I, I'm probably around 1%. Yep. That's a great answer. It's, it's if you hang out on Twitter too much, you can get the, the Bitcoin FOMO all day. It seems like everybody's, everybody's profile on Twitter is like, I'm a crypto trader. I'm a Ethereum enthusiast. It's sometimes hard to see through the noise, but that, that's a great answer. What are the biggest mistakes that novice investors make or just things that like, do you think a lot of it has to do with somebody's natural temperament and who they are as an individual as opposed to just mistakes they make? Like if you're a very emotional person, no matter how much you try, being in the stock market just might not be for you. Or do you think that most mistakes that are made are more kind of self-inflicted? Yeah, so I remember listening to a podcast with Monish Pabrai, who's like a very famous investor, really solid returns for a long time. And I remember him saying that your personality is fixed by the time you're five years old. Basically, you either got it or you don't. And I found myself really disagreeing with that. And maybe I'm too naive, but I really think that we can set up structures and systems in order to help us make better decisions. So 
for instance, one thing that I think a lot of novice investors, a mistake they make is anchoring. So you look at a stock and you see that it's 52-week high is $100. You see that the 52-week low is $50. And then you see that the stock is at like $99. So it's almost at all-time high. And you anchor to that $50 price and you say, well, the stock has doubled in the past year. There's no way that it could be a good investment from here on. But the thing is, that's anchoring to the past. That $50 is already in the past. All that matters is the future. Pretend this company was growing at 100%. It was growing earnings even faster. And you know it was like a fairly cheap valuation, even though it had already doubled. And it might actually still be a good investment. So it's really all about the future. And that's really what I try to remind myself over and over. So one system that you can do is just ask like creative questions and put it in um, like what I do personally is I have a few emotional biases checklists that I go through when I'm buying an investment. So, okay, have I thought about the future? Am I anchoring to a price? Just like a few different questions so that I'm kind of just clear my mind and make sure that I've thought about those things rather than just jumping right in. I love it. All right. We're, uh, we're coming down the finish line. Are there any, books or reading materials that have been super influential in helping you along this journey? Yeah. So the first book I read that kind of got me hooked on the stock market was One Up on Wall Street by Peter Lynch. Um, And he's just talking about um, how you need to invest in what you know. He went down to the store and then he saw the line at the door and his wife loved the store and he went and researched the stock, bought it, and it was a great investment. I do think that to a certain extent, you'd need to figure out um, actually how to research versus just kind of, you know, like, oh, I've been in an Uber one time. It must be great investment. Um, so there's definitely some some research that goes on. And then there was another book called Common Stocks and Uncommon Profits. And that is by uh, Ken Fisher's father, Phil Fisher. And it was just a great primer on growth investing and how he would never sell a stock because it went up and he would just focus on the business, the underlying business. Um, So I think those two books were, I just, found it fascinating that you could use your natural skills and observation skills in order to make money. And I think it's a really attractive thing. And this kind of right brain of the stock market uh, makes it you know, more interesting to a lot of people. Um, the other side of that might say, okay, well, we don't want just like pure novices in the stock market because then they get destroyed. But I'm, I'm kind of of the other side because I think that people learn really fast. And if you're doing something and you get destroyed, you'll really remember that. And hopefully it doesn't scar you, but hopefully you can learn from it. Um, So there's definitely two sides there, but those are two books that um, I really enjoyed. Man, this has been uh, an awesome conversation and I've I've taken a ton from it and learned a lot and and appreciate the time that uh, you've given to chat with me today. Yeah, it's all my pleasure. You're a great interviewer, Chris. Thank you very much. All right, buddy. Have a great weekend. All right. Have a good one, Chris. Thanks, Ryan. Hey, everyone. It's Chris here again. 
Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review for us on iTunes. It will help more folks discover each episode. You can also reach me on Twitter at Fort Worth Chris or our email at thefortpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again.